Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. This is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And uh, here we are with the old Church Planner Podcast. On this episode of Church Planner Podcast, uh, we kind of left a cliffhanger last time, uh, Peyton. Uh, we were talking and just briefly started to, to get back to how you got started in church planning. And so that's where we're going to be kicking it off. And based on uh, time, I also want to start yeah. digging into the first chapter of your book, Church Zero. So hopefully we'll have some some time to start digging in on that. Sounds good to me. Shameless plugs are always up my alley. But uh, yeah, on this uh, numero dos, uh, the deuce. Um, you know, I, I I'm glad you're bringing that into it because you know I kind of didn't want it to uh, be all about me at the end of the. I, I got a bit long winded on my uh, story about me, but I I guess it's good, Pete, for people to know who we are and. Um, they always want to kind of know your backstory. What have you done in church planning? And I think when uh, I left it off, it was kind of like, hey, you know, I was uh, I had gotten saved and the Lord is working and I ended up in ministry and uh, start off in a mega church. And I think for a lot of people, uh, if they've hey, read you, church, you know what, zero, Peyton, huh? you know what, before you get to that, I have to make a comment. I have to interject a comment here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you dude. were saying how you. No, no, that's all right. You were saying how you got a little long-winded last time. And I was having a conversation yesterday with, I don't even remember who it was, and I brought up the conference that we were at where we were just doing back-to-back video interviews for Church Planner Magazine, Uh, a uh, digital magazine. You can find it at churchplannermagazine.com. Shameless plug. Yeah. And um, (laughs) and I, I don't remember who I was talking to, but I said, yeah, you know, Peyton's doing these interviews, and... You know, he's interviewing pastors, and so he's telling some of them before we get started, hey, you know, keep your answers short, keep them bite-sized, and I'm thinking in my head, you're telling this to a pastor? They don't know how to shut up. That's why they're pastors. (laughs) So when you're saying, oh, I was a little long-winded last time, I'm like, "Uh, pastor, 
<laughs> so Absolutely. anyway, now now back to your now back to your serious talk about uh, uh, you're over in Wales and go from there. I'm sorry, man. Go go ahead and go. No, now I'm all self conscious. Thanks, Pete. So here's the deal, <laughs> right? Like I I start off in a in a in a mega church, and uh, the the deal is is that. I'm not really um, anti-mega church. I think that people that have read Church Zero might get that impression, but I loved being in the mega church and I loved seeing it from the inside out. I love seeing its flaws. I love seeing its weaknesses. But I ended up getting kind of sucked in. I think I mentioned that uh, I basically got sucked in because uh, my youth pastor, uh, his wife was sick and he was my mentor. And so that was a real hard time. And I I, I was just keeping the seat warm. And one thing led to another, ended up uh, becoming the assistant pastor without boring you with all the details. Um, eventually, the pastor I served under, another another gentleman, had a, a moral failure. And so then I became an interim pastor. And I was, you know, 20, 20 uh, when I stepped into the pulpit and 23 when I became the... I, actually, I was 22 when I became the interim pastor. And I had just... Uh, proposed to my wife. Um, I was getting ready to get married, and new guy came in. He was a missionary. What I love about him, his name was Bill. He's still my sinning pastor to this day. He came in, and he had a missional mindset back before it was cool to have a missional mindset. He basically had gotten off the mission field, was teaching at a school of missions, and uh, it was a divine appointment that he was meant to be there. His mother passed away. He was in town for a funeral. His sister went to our church. He wasn't even a candidate. But he came in, preached for us, and everybody just knew this is God's guy. And I'll never forget the first thing that he ever said to us was he said, look, I'm not a pastor. Um, I, I, I'm a missionary, and I am a missionary first, and I will always be a missionary first. And my aim is to make all of you missionaries. And, you know, since then, like countless books have been written about it. He just has always had a missionary heart. And so he began to... Uh, to really challenge and change me because I was such a bookworm, like I mentioned, that uh, he'd come in and I'd be reading these incredible books and, you know, kind of hitting the Puritans. And he'd come in and say, what are you going to do today? And I'd say, I'm going to read. And he'd say, well, aren't you going to, like, go conquer the world for Jesus? And I'd, I'd be like, well, you know, maybe. We'll see. Probably, probably change the world from behind my desk. And, uh, and, and that was kind of the, the start for me. Um, I was his first missionary uh, sent out, and the Lord was just kind of even then niggling in the back of my mind, like, you need to get out from behind the desk, you need to actually start doing stuff. And then when I headed overseas, I went to Wales, and I ended up at Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones's church there, and uh, they asked me to be the evangelist. And I didn't even know what an evangelist did. And uh, so what happened was... Um, they, they kind of showed me the ropes and said, you go door to door, you do all the nasty stuff people want to do, open air preaching, um, you run all kind of, kinds of events, you talk to people on the streets. So I did that stuff for like a year and not a you single know, wh- person. Why don't you just, just briefly explain what is open air preaching for people who don't know that, that term? Okay, well, open air preaching, open air preaching would be uh, when you go out into like a town square and you start preaching like to people walking by, um, you know, and, and, and what's interesting is Charles Spurgeon actually has a chapter on this called on extemporaneous speaking. And of course, he just means street preaching. 
Um, it, it was kind of a big deal in Britain. You can go to Hyde Park today and see it. It is a dying breed, uh, even in Britain. But I, I actually learned a lot while I was there. I, I made some observations. Number one, uh, most middle class people think you're nuts for doing it, just like they do here in America. Um, but there is a heritage there of it. Unlike America, it's not as big here, but they have quite a heritage. But one thing I did notice was cultists, drug addicts, um, the lower class, um, the down and outs, uh, the homeless, they all listen. About 10% of the population respond extremely well. So you'll hear people today kind of poo-pooing street preaching and say, oh, you know, it doesn't really have a place. That's not true at all. It just doesn't have a place with people with money. Um, with the people that are truly in each street preaching works like a charm. And I've seen Muslims uh, break down in tears on the street as a result of uh, street preaching. It just can be a powerful medium for different people. But anyways, for me, it didn't work. No, no one was converted. So what eventually happened was that um, 9-11 hit. My support dropped in half, and I had to go get a job. And so I ended up working in a factory uh, making TVs for Sony. And I'll never forget sitting on that conveyor line. And I had a really important job of wiping springs on a TV frame to make sure there's no dust in there. It was a very important job. felt very special. Nice. And the, and nice. the, and the, fact, of the fact of the matter is I felt ripped off, man. And I remember thinking I've traveled halfway around the world to be a missionary. And here I am making devil boxes. And uh, what's the deal with this? You know, I don't want to be doing this. And, uh, it, it, you know, lo and behold, Pete, three people got saved in that factory within a few months. They were my first converts, hmm. you know? So, you know, God started to show me then, hey, real ministry, Peyton, is outside of the church walls. That is real ministry. And when I, when I look at, we're talking about church planning, right? That again was the start. That was the continuation of the Lord just tapping me saying, hey, I'm over here. You think ministry is over there? It's over here. And if you want to come with me, I'll take you. <laughs> but but up to that point, you know, that's, like, hey, that's a really interesting. That's a really interesting uh, concept that just kind of hit me as you were saying it. Real ministry happens outside of the church, outside of the walls, and I think that that concept right there is going to. Um, I mean, it's going to raise a lot of questions and stuff, uh, and, and stuff that we can't really get into on this particular podcast because we've already got a lot to cover. But you know, I, I think one of the things that I'm going to want to hit on is uh, how you view some of these big launches that people do for church planning, because I mean, it almost seems the opposite of what that statement was, which is you know the the real service is happening outside of the walls. Yet, when I look at like the big launches that go on of, hey, you know, we're going to have 200 people show up our very first weekend, and you know, we're, we're basically starting off on a, a well-established church, it almost seems the opposite of that, that concept. But, I mean, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I'm just... No, I'm just, no you're right. You're right. What, what basically, uh, I, I can remember reading something that, that Neil Cole was a part of, um, church planner in Long Beach, and uh, he basically... Uh, was interviewed and he was asked, you know, what, how would you church plant? Because they said, look, you know, the average thing is you take about 50 people, you reach what's called critical math, you get commitments to tithing, you get the mothership to kind of fund your campaign, you run, you know, leaflet drops, you know, uh, and successions of, of three increments, and uh, you build up to the big launch, and on that day you want to have a target goal of this many people, and on and on, you got to sustain it for this much money a month with 100000 in the bank. 
And then they said to Neil Cole, what, what's your method? And he said, well, basically, uh, I'd probably go two by two into that city. We'd probably take a bus there so we could get to know the people. We'd get off the bus, and uh, we'd walk around and pray for the city, and we'd ask for God to open doors. And uh, we just start seeing what happens out of our conversations. And, you know, when you hear that contrast, um, you, you really, it's not hard to tell which one is closer to the book of Acts and how the Apostle mm-hmm. Paul operated. And we've gotten so far away from that. The, the amazing thing to me, and of course, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, an alarm bell ringer, um, people don't even notice it. The, the saying that the fish is the last one to notice the water, um, we're in this weird church culture right now that uh, doesn't even stop to examine itself and say, is there a reason with all of our size and money and power that we're having so little impact? Maybe it's because we are now the establishment, and Christianity as the establishment has always been ineffective. Um, but Christianity as a renegade movement, as a countercultural uh, underground thing, has always waxed strong. Interesting. Interesting. You want me to go back to my story? Because uh, I'm yeah. going to round yeah. it Sorry. up here. Didn't mean to take you away from. Didn't mean to take you away from your story. But yeah, go ahead and go back. <laughs> you, you didn't mean to take me away from myself. Okay, more about me now. Um, <laughs> Here's the deal. Uh, basically, you know, so so I started seeing God work outside of the church, and 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 what happened was, um, you know, we, we out of Louis Jones's church, we wanted to plant a church, and I was the evangelist, so I was a part of this kind of like little uh, commando team that was planning this, and then the the senior pastor resigned, and I was yet again an interim pastor, and I felt. At that point, they were all kind of chanting, you know, Peyton for president, Peyton for president. And some of the leaders knew how radical I was. And they just said, you know what, he's not the guy for us. And they were right, because I, I warned them, I'll break your church um, if, if you hand it to me. I didn't know at that time I had an apostolic ministry, but I knew at that time that God was calling me to do some radical stuff. And so this kind of commando unit to go plant in the next village over, um, I didn't feel that I could take that. And so... Uh, I, I felt it would kind of siphon people out of the church, and I didn't feel right about that. That church needed to be there, and it needed to be healthy for what it was doing, but there also needed to be another church plant. And so I got recruited because the guy who stepped in at that time, uh, he's now developed a great evangelistic gift. He's a powerful gospel preacher, but at the time, he wasn't confident in that. So he he would ask me, you know, uh, Peyton, will you come and preach the gospel uh, and I said, look, I'll come once a month. And so what I started doing was almost like an itinerant style ministry. I took a pastorate out in the west uh, of Wales, but I began to itinerate for evangelism. I, I you, know, uh, you know, preacher for hire, have sermon, will travel. Should have been written on the back of my card. But people were asking me to, to preach the gospel. So everywhere I went, people get saved, including this church plant. And as I'm reading Acts and reading the epistles, I started realizing hold on, what I'm doing, in other words, my, my skill set, people are calling on me. Uh, and this is a lot like what Paul did by sending Apollos, Timothy, Titus, uh, moving these 32 guys that are listed in the New Testament as interchangeable players, uh, kind of special teams, moving them around. I realize I haven't invented this. I'm getting sucked into something here that is, in fact, the only way we can do this in Wales. And so... Um, just to fast forward, uh, that went on for a few years. And then at that church I took in the West, I got kicked in the teeth. 
And I mean, I really hmm. got kicked in the teeth. The Holy Spirit was moving powerfully. People were getting saved. And there was a little bit of like what you find in the book of Acts where uh, the Hellenists and the Jews, there was a bit of, of, a, of a, a rumbling and a division. Well, we had English speakers and Welsh speakers. And the Lord started moving through the English-speaking ministry. I did not speak Welsh, although I took lessons. I suck at languages. Uh, but I, I started seeing the Lord really bless uh, the Welsh speakers. They started getting saved in the English-speaking meetings. And the Welsh people were very jealous for their language. And so it became a little bit of a cultural taboo that, you know, we were kind of crossing the beams, you know. And what I was like, hey, we're just trying to blow up the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Let's not worry about crossing the beams. You know, let's get her done. And uh, they didn't see it that way. Um, and as everything went to a vote where they, they basically, it, it got so strong that half the leadership wanted to get rid of me because they said he's going to break our Welsh ministry and uh, all these Welsh speakers are coming to the faith through uh, the English speaking stuff. I know it sounds absolutely stupid. It is as stupid as the uh, division between the, the, the Greeks and the Jews, but it still exists today. And so what happened was it went to a vote. I won the vote. But the Holy Spirit tapped me and said, that's it, pal. You're, uh, you're done. Sorry, it's a train that runs right by my house. <laughs> I, and, think, uh, I think everybody is going to think that you live in, like, the total ghetto because every podcast is going to have that train. <laughs> yeah, but you know what's cool is, like, when I make a really good point and it goes, Woo, you know, then, <laughs> hey, that's what I think. That's, that's how I hear it in my mind. I don't know if our listeners hear it that way. But it's definitely, I, you know, and then, woo. So anyways, uh, so, so what happened was I ended up, um, I, you know, I was cool with that. All right, Lord, I'll go. But here's what it did to me. It made me an impatient man. And I think to a certain degree, church planners need to be impatient. They need to be impatient about reaching the lost. When I left that pastorate, I actually, after a while, God didn't tell me what to do next. And I started getting cheesed off. And I started getting angry. I got angry at God, I got angry at Christians, I got angry at church, and I told God, I quit. And if I ever end up in ministry, I swear I will never fight through Christians to try to reach a loss ever again. I'm done with that. And uh, hmm. what ended up happening was, you know, I I went to Starbucks, um, you know, I, I, I was heading back to America, I had quit. And God had uh, not allowed me to turn ministry on and off like a light switch. I, I've been looking for that light switch for a number of years now, trying to figure out when you can switch ministry on and off. It's not there. If you're called to ministry, you're going to be a minister wherever God's put you. I think a lot of church planners need to know that. So I ended up in uh, Starbucks, again, not quote-unquote real ministry, but that is where the most real ministry I've ever done began. So, well, expand on that idea. What do you mean that that's where it began well, in, in the Starbucks? Well, again, you know, God is working outside of the church. And when you look at the Apostle Paul, right, when he goes to Asia Minor, um, and he's, he's touring all around Cyprus and Turkey and all these places he's going to, Macedonia, um, Asia, he is not going into a, a community that's church. And in fact, he's, he and his team are the only Christians uh, you know, 9.99% of the time, uh, they, they, they're the only ones there. And so what happened was the Apostle Paul had to start 
church with non-believers. And that's what happened. Because I had quit ministry, and I had told the Lord, look, I don't want any part. You need to do it. If if you want ministry to happen from now on, I'm, I, I quit. I'm not doing it anymore. You do it. I'll show up if you want to do something. Now, but you now take when you say... When you say you quit ministry, what exactly does that mean to you? Did you quit going to church, or was it like, well, I'm just going to quit being a pastor, evangelist, you know, whatever? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I kept going to church. I, I'm the guy that, you know, I wasn't raised in the church, but I love going to church. And I would I would love uh, going to church no matter what. I just, I love being there. and But I don't always like doing it, strangely enough. So, um here was a deal. I I still went to church, but that's because I got a lot of invitations to go preach. And so I show up at churches, and because I was in a dark place, I was cheesed off of God, cheesed off of Christians, I'd show up, and I would say things uh, like, you know, I'd stand up in the pulpit and say, you know, I really don't want to be here this morning. And uh, they'd all laugh, like, ha that's a funny thing, funny joke, Pastor. And then I'd say, no, I'm serious, but you know what? You're paying me, and... Uh, I got a sermon here, so you know, let's just see what happens, and because uh, I need the money, and I was so raw and so brash, and strangely, because I wasn't up there faking or trying to be something, the Holy Spirit would just come, and even though my heart wasn't in a good place, um, the Holy Spirit just used me, and I learned so much at that time. I think sometimes we get into this trap that God can only use us if we're one hundred percent spot on. And that's just a lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I mean, the the reality is God just wants to use us. You know, that's also a really interesting comment right there because I think a lot of people are also under the impression that you have to be uh, a phenomenal communicator from the pulpit to have an impact for Christ. And basically, and I think part of that, in my mind, it stems from our belief that... our our belief our it stems from our pride right that somehow yeah. god needs me that if if i don't show up and put on my a game god can't do anything and the reality is we're along for the ride cuz god doesn't need us period so you, you know what? we're it's just so funny. simply along for the ride so funny you say that cuz there there's a guy i can't i can't say who it is but years ago god taught me a lesson cuz i'm i'm in, in my day, I was quite a pulpiteer, and uh, preaching was very, very important to me. I had to sacrifice um, the sermon uh, for effectiveness. And, and what I mean by that is I used to be very polished as a preacher, illustrate everything perfectly. I'd be meticulous in my preparation. I would spend hours and hours and hours preparing. I still prepare. But when you're church planning, um, it's not like preaching to a Christian congregation. They don't understand 90% of what we refer to. So if I'm referring to Ark of the Covenant, I have to, in Wales at least, I learned I had to say, you know, that that scary box in Raiders of the Lost Ark. They didn't remember what the Ark of the Covenant, especially when they hear it in the context of it, and then they go, oh, yeah, Ark of the Covenant, okay, I remember hmm. now. But, but hmm. you know, you start learning that, you know, it takes a lot longer to communicate this truth to people and you have to sacrifice your uh, your pets, man. We all got pets. We all got things we want, you know. Uh, maybe you want alliterated points. You know, they, they just don't get that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, I had to um, 
I just had to, to show up. But, but I think the key thing was being real. Um, I was just real. I was raw. I wasn't in a good place. And I started learning that. I think that was preparation for church planning because as the more real I got, the more non-believers listen to me, the more that they actually receive from me. I think that we forget that a lot of people are suspicious of us as preachers. You know, they, they've watched a lot of the TV and a lot of the propaganda and They've seen the TV preachers that are out for people's money and they're always big and sweaty and wear white suits and have big hair and get all the chicks. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that people are, are suspicious. And I've learned to be real. I've learned to use humor. Um, humor is, is something that brings people together and right away lets them know you don't take yourself too seriously. And um, all those things are helpful. But especially being real and vulnerable and, you know, being like the apostles in Scripture. The scripture tells us very plainly, these guys didn't have it all together. And then you feel like you can receive, oh, I can receive from this Peter guy. I like this Peter guy. I can relate to this Peter guy. He screwed up pretty big. What a knucklehead. And then you, you, you hear them testifying of Jesus, and there's this human element to it that, uh, you know, I, I think God's a genius. He's, you're a marketer, Pete. You know, this is a good product endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because one of the things that you're saying is one of the things that I've noticed in my own business. Uh, for instance, I run a, a monthly marketing uh, meetup group. And one of the things that has really changed in that group is when we went from – I run it with another guy. When we went from the lecture format, which would be a typical uh, church service, I would consider that lecture format. Pastor gets up there, starts preaching – we all sit back, enjoy the show, uh, give a little tip at offering time, and walk out. When we went from that to much more of a, of a classroom-style meeting, where one of the first things I say when I get up in front of people is, look, I prefer the interaction, so let's handle this as a conversation. You guys have questions. I know my material as you have questions, let's just address them. Let's just dig into yeah. them. I mean, I've got a, I've got an outline. Basically, I've got a format. I know what I want to cover. And the difference is we are a very core group of people that are very tightly knit. And yeah. they love to come back. And we're yeah. not as big. And I certainly don't make, you know, I actually, I don't think I've made any money off the group because I don't pitch any product at it. You know, but... Um, but to me, it's kind of like if you take that same mentality, and that's what you're saying, and you apply it to the church format of, you know, let's we know where we're going to go with this, but let's go ahead and have room for questions. Let's go ahead and have room for interaction because well, that, the unchurched yeah. are full of questions, man. They're full of it. Uh, they are full of it. You know, it, it's funny because uh, when when uh, when I ended up. Uh, going to Starbucks, and I remember I'm I've I've quit, and uh, but you can't turn the light switch on and off. So I say to God, and this is this is where this interaction thing came in for me, because Dan Brown Da Vinci Code was like the huge bestseller in 2005, and people were saying things like, "Hey, have you read this book?" Because they come through the bar, and I was a talkative American, and I'd be chatting, and they'd find out I was a preacher, and they'd say, "What do you think of this book?" Because it was in, this Starbucks was in Borders Books. 
And so there were books everywhere. It was like a, a massive Starbucks and a massive uh, Borders books. May they rest in peace. And what happened was, I, you know, so I'm saying to the Lord, so many people are asking me about this book that I've got this working relationship with. Lord, what do you uh, want to uh, do? And, and, I, and, and I, you know, I had already thrown the gauntlet down. So I was like, remember, God, you got to do this. If you want me to do something, I remember praying that morning. Most of my prayers at that time had four-letter words in them. Uh, I, I'm just being real with you. Um, that I was in a dark place. But I said, Lord, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it. That night, I'm chucking out muffins into the trash with my manager, and he says, hey, Jonesy, you know how you're like a preacher? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, you know how <laughs> you're like a you... preacher. <laughs> I'm sorry, he said, I like that know... line. Yeah. He, he said, would you ever want to like throw a religious group here, a church thing? And I said, well, maybe. What, what do you got in mind? He said, well, the district manager has been breathing down my neck. It is a Starbucks after all, and we do need to have uh, social events um, in the community, community events. And he goes, and we really suck at that. I've never had a community event here. He said, uh, would you like to throw something? So I said, yeah, I will. All right. And I'm just looking up like, all right, God, thanks for opening that door. I said, look, here's the deal. I'm going to be like talking about Jesus, though. Is that cool? And he goes, yeah, man, whatever you want to do, just get the DM off my back. So we roped off half of the Starbucks. Now, we're back in America. I've still never seen a Starbucks as big as this one. No exaggeration. It took up a third of the space of a huge Borders Books. I mean, it was like a warehouse. And uh, we roped off half. Here's what happened. That night, 30 nonbelievers turned up. And we had a reading group. At the end of that night, they're like, are we going to do it again? And I said, no. And they said, why not? And I said, because it'd be lame. It'd be stupid. We just go through the same book again. And they go, no, that's what we want to do. We have more questions. In fact, they said, this was awesome. We were drinking coffee, talking about Jesus, and nobody was yelling at us. Well, you know, that's all I had to now, hear. Said, now, did you uh, – let's, let's deconstruct this a little bit. Okay, so how did you start it off? I mean – was it just like, hey, okay, we're going to start talking about, you know, the Da Vinci Code? Or, I mean, deconstruct this for us. Yeah, sure. Um, it was really simple. I mean, I put a, you know, I was a little bit cheeky on it because I got an employee discount. So I bought a bunch of cake and I got them to agree to free coffee. So I advertised a free coffee and free cake, but I paid the cake out of my pocket. Um, the Welsh are hobbits, just so you should know. They, they, they sit in their hobbit holes and drink tea and coffee and eat cake all the time because Tolkien had them in mind when he was writing the hobbits this is no joke but the 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 fact is it's a rainy country it rains all the time so they love to sit and talk about things they've read so this was a cultural in so um what I did was we showed up. So I had this sign up there, 30 non-believers turned up. And what happened is we sat around that night and I first, I just asked them questions and they talked a bit. And then I'd ask them another question. They talk and I'd ask them about the book. And what do you think about this? And do you think Dan Brown, you know, is, is, uh, onto something here or do you smell a rat, you know, and I'd get people talking and then I would say, well, look, I'm going to speak for 10 minutes, and I'm going to give my opinion. I am a preacher, and I had also recruited from a seminary an Old Testament scholar. 
even though he was Old Testament scholar, um, he, he was fairly knowledgeable on New Testament uh, academics. So uh, he was kind of like our secret weapon. He stayed quiet the whole time. And about maybe 40 minutes in, it lasted an hour and 15 minutes, he spoke up and said, well, you know, I'm a scholar, and um, boom, 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 and this is what I think. And so it's always good to have a guy like that. In Refuge Long Beach right now, we've got a guy named Don Stoner, you know, Pete, and uh, he's our yep. big guns. Um, he helped invented something, invent something called the compact disc. You might have heard of it. He's a mad scientist and, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty knowledgeable guy on just about everything. So, you know, it's good to have big guns. Didn't he write a book on uh, Einstein, Einstein's theory of relativity or something like that? Yeah, he's he's written a handful of books. And, uh, you know, so go, going, you know, going back to the Starbucks thing, what happened was uh, by the end of the second night, they said, now what are we going to do? And I said, well, nothing. And I, I'm, I'm running through my head like Life of Pi, uh, you know, that was a, a, a new book out at that time. Um, not the film it is today, but um, it was a new book, and I'd read it, and I thought, well, you know, it deals with universalism, and um, that's what most people believe. So, uh, and, and I just have to say this real quickly. Um, when Dan Brown wrote a book, I did a double backflip for joy. I was so happy. Um, Christians here were mad. They were protesting. They were throwing rocks at Dan Brown. Um, same with Life of Pi. A book about universalism comes out. As a missionary in the UK, I did double backflips over that. Not because I believe Dan Brown, not because I believe in universalism. I don't. But because of the fact that it becomes a platform when you're a missionary to talk to people about Jesus. If they're reading those books, hey, I'm going to read that book and I'm going to talk to them about it. So one man's castaway becomes a missionary's treasure. Make sense? Yep. So anyways, going back to this. So at the end of the second night, they're like, what are we going to do? And I said, you know, I don't know. We could do this. We could do that. And one lady raised her hand and said, excuse me, but maybe, you know, how Dan Brown talked about the Gnostic Gospels. Maybe we could read the Gospels that Jesus' real followers wrote. And then the Holy Spirit was tapping me like, hey, dummy, do you, do you see what I'm doing here? <laughs> Are you ready to do this? Because I'm here. I'm already working. I'm working in spite of you. I'm working all around you. If you want to come with me, I'll let you. But this is what I do. You showed me what you could do for a number of years. Now let me show you what I do. And Pete, you know from being at Refuge Long Beach, I mean, I just get out of God's way, man. That's it. I don't got to control stuff. I don't got to be the big boss. I get out of his way. He is a supernatural God, and he delights in revealing his arm, in glorifying his name. And that's what that church became. That church became a, a church where I was along for the ride, man, but I wasn't driving or steering. Now, did you guys always meet in the Starbucks, or when did you move somewhere else? Where did you move? I mean, what did that look like? Well, that became the start of my whole philosophy of Sunday mornings are for outreach. We met on a weeknight at that time. And so what happened was I was building a core team. Once that started taking off, that, that became a real green light to me that, yes, we need to plan a church. The Lord is moving here. And I think that's a key to starting a church, by the way. Paul always went into a community and evangelized. And if lost people were there, he, uh, he planned a church. 
he didn't just like target an area and say, boom. There, there are towns that I went to when I toured through Turkey where the book of Acts says Paul went and preached. Nothing happened. He went on to the next town. He wasn't like, look, I got to have this and I got to make this church plant happen. Paul went, saw where the Holy Spirit was at work, and basically once he saw the wind rushing through a canyon, um, he uh, erected a wind turbine called a church. <laughs> And uh, hmm. but he didn't just go out and you know erect wind turbines and expect the wind to show up somewhere. Um, he went into a place, evangelized, and I always tell church planners, whatever books you're reading, whatever guys are telling you, just stop. Go evangelize. Do what Jesus told him to do. Get power from on high and go. <laughs> that's it. And uh, and so that's what happened. But there were places Paul moved on from. But there God was moving. So I formed a core team. And then outside of that, what what actually started to happen was we uh, we started moving to Sundays after a number of months simply because we thought, well, if people are getting saved, it's not right for us not to give them an opportunity to worship. And I would be preaching in Starbucks. I mean, I'd be preaching loudly for 10 to 15 minutes. And then, you know, we would start off with discussion. You always start with them talking. Then you give a 10 to 15 minute monologue. Then you go back to dialogue for the majority of the time. When you want to reach non-believers effectively, this is very effective. And so what happened was... Um, wait, wait, wait. Okay, we, hold on a second. All right. So you said you start off with... Them talking, so their discussion, and then you preach, and then you go back to Q&A? Absolutely. Because if you start off preaching, it's a game changer. You want to hear them talk first. You want to pose questions. You want to throw teasers out. You want to get them all excited and frothing at the mouth about the subject, and then you come in. Boom. And it has to be, you know, Charles Spurgeon wrote in that chapter, Extemporaneous Preaching, um, although this isn't street preaching, Charles Spurgeon said every thought has to be a bullet. In fact, he went on to say, if you uh, let me teach for an hour, I'll take a few hours to prepare. If you give me 30 minutes, I'll need uh, a a week. He said, if you give me uh, five to 10 minutes, I'll need a month. Um, because when you have a shorter amount of time, every statement is crucial. And so I started learning to make every thought a bullet and to ask for so God to bless when, when, when you started out, you know, the, the discussion at the beginning, were you providing questions to people to mm-hmm. start discussing? Or yeah. was it like, yeah. okay, today's book is The Life of Pi, Discuss. Let me let me back up a bit because what what I haven't told our our listeners is that um, in that second church experience I had where I got kicked in the teeth, I had already discovered this. I was in a university town and I'd already kind of gotten the idea. This was the oldest university outside of Oxford and Cambridge, um, University of Wales, Lampeter, uh, St David's College. So uh, when I when I was outside of there, we were doing work amongst the students. And we thought, we need to do something in a neutral venue. So we went to a, a what you would call like an athletic center. And we met in a room there. We served food. Students always come to food. So again, it's thinking like a missionary. Um, but, but then we were like, we need to bring them into a place where they'll want to talk about God. So I have a funny sense of humor. So my, my kind of under the leading of the Spirit, um, but also using my own gifts and personality traits, which God always does if you let him. Uh, I basically uh, came up with 
Um, does God have a sense of humor? That was our topic question. So I'll, I'll kind of walk you through how that looked, and this will kind of tell you how Starbucks looked. But this is a really clear example of this. Basically, it was, does God have a sense of humor? So when they turned up that night, I asked them, do you think God has a sense of humor? And I, I posed the question, but I let them talk about it for about 15 minutes. And people, what was coming out during that time was people's misconceptions. Um, no, you know, that's why you see, always see that religious people are so serious, you know, sucking green persimmons, on and on. And then you had other people going, oh, I think he probably does have a sense of humor. I mean, look at me, right? And, you know, you, you were just finding different cross-sections of, of people's beliefs. And when you throw events like this, you're always going to be dealing with a kaleidoscope of thought and belief. You will not ever have a consensus when you open it up like that. So what, what happened then is I stepped in and said, right, now I'm going to talk 10 to 15 minutes. And I walked him through uh, I, all the reasons I thought that God had a sense of humor. And I would, it was very ordered. I said, first off, from what we know, right, from creation. Number one, farts. If God made us, we all know that farts are funny, and they were meant to be funny. Every culture on the world laughs when someone next to them farts. I was in a movie theater the other night watching Superman, and right at the, the it was amazing timing, right at the point where the supervillain uh, is trying to attune his powers so he doesn't hear everything, and everything gets serene and quiet in his head, the guy next to me ripped the hugest fart. And that, that was just comedy beyond comedy to the entire theater. <laughs> Everybody in the theater, while it was dead quiet, the guy ripped this huge fart right behind me. And so, you know, people were laughing in the room. What was great about this event is it's the first Christian event these people have ever come to, and everybody's laughing. And we're talking about the funniest stuff that happens in creation, the stuff that happens in nature, some of the animals God made, you know, some of the funny things that happen, you know, in science or scientific discovery. And then I said, well, you know, check this out, the Bible. And so I start talking about like, hey, you think Shrek is funny? Hey, God had one up on Shrek. Thousands of years ago, the Bible talks about a talking donkey. And the story's meant to be funny. Balaam's donkey is a funny story. You're meant to laugh at it. Um, and so I just started going through the Bible. All the things that Jesus said that were funny, where he calls uh, John and uh, James sons of thunder. You know, when they say, Lord, call fire down on these people. I mean, there are an amazing amount of humorous things, if you know what to look for in the scripture. And so at the end of that, um, my, my closing point for that was, well, there's a lot of things about God. If we're wrong about God having a sense of humor, what else could we be wrong on? And so then we opened that up to discussion. And people started just throwing things out. Some of the Christians threw things out. Um, that, you know, uh, God is punishing us or, you know, blah, blah. What else about God may not be true? And, and it was amazing to hear all these things. What are some of your thoughts about God? How, why do you believe that? And then I closed it off by saying, well, come back next week and we're going to talk uh, about um, what God says he's like. God gave us a very clear picture to know exactly so we're not guessing. And, of course, you know where I'm going to go. The second night, I led him up to 
Jesus, where Jesus says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so I, during my talk, you know, I tease it out. I just repeat the process. By the third week, it was who is Jesus was the topic. And so in three short weeks, I brought people from completely unchurched, uninterested, non-concerned, to suddenly not being able to wait to the third week to hear about Jesus. By the way, those are the kind of meetings that got me in trouble. <laughs> Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean they got you in trouble? What do you mean by that? Well, that was at my second church. That's when the Spirit really started moving. And so by the time I went, so so the establishment that the church did not like, that, that things were getting a bit out of control. People were getting saved. Uh, Welsh-speaking people were coming to this English meeting because this was a cool meeting. And uh, it was growing, um, new people coming in all the time. And what happened at the end of this was that uh, when I went to Starbucks, I already knew um, what the potential of something like this was. I just didn't know that 30 non-believers were going to turn up. But I already seen the power of what I term synagogue-style evangelism. When it says that Paul went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, there was discussion. And I've, I've since come to believe that dialogue and discussion is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools you can possibly use. Mm, sure. Sure, I agree. In fact, um, as you know, I'm on the board of directors for Apologetics.com. And these guys, they do a radio show, uh, which is also a podcast. And um, really how they got started with their whole ministry. Well, one, it got started because uh, the, the CEO of Apologetics.com, he was uh, getting his degree, I believe, in Apologetics his his master's degree at Biola. I don't think it was an undergraduate. I think it was his graduate degree. And so he just happened to um, get uh, uh, the domain apologetics.com. And his professor's like, well, I should give you an A just for getting that degree or that, that domain, I should say. And, and you know, that, that was such a cool thing. <laughs> but what they did when they first started it, this is back in the days when forums were still kind of new on the internet. This is, you know, 13 years ago. And they created just a, a bulletin board system where people could ask questions and the dialogue could start. And, hmm. and that was really what they did. They just happened to do it on the internet. And it was, they basically just had one rule. You, you have to treat people with respect. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah. no flaming or anything like that. And it just opened that communication up and people were able to dialogue back and forth. That's awesome. And, you know, it's funny because you asked me the question earlier. You said, you know, what about, you know, did, did you keep that format? Did you stay in the Starbucks? We did for a number of months until we felt that, hey, these people aren't able to worship this God that they're coming to know. So we're going to have to go out of the Starbucks and actually get in a building where we can worship God. And so what happened was um, we made the decision that this is working so well, we're not going to sit in rows. Um, I, I read an article this week that, that the title was brilliant. It was, Life Change Doesn't Happen in Rows, It Happens in Circles. And so we sat around horseshoes, or excuse me, we sat in horseshoes, we arranged the chairs rather than in rows in, in half circles, and stuck coffee tables uh, in, in the middle of that, that, that horseshoe uh, with the deliberate intent 
of reproducing the atmosphere that we had in Starbucks. I mean, everybody knows that Starbucks creates that environment called the third place. And there's since been uh, books written about this, The Gospel According to Starbucks by Leonard Sweet. But I got to be honest with you, before all, that, before all that was being talked about, I was living it as a Starbucks partner, as a barista. I was seeing it happen. Um, and, and they had taught me this philosophy that people will pay $4, not for a cup of coffee, but for an experience. And I was like, you know what? That's what church ought to be. Church ought to have that, that third place philosophy. The first place is where you live. The second place is where you work, right? The third place is where you want to be when you're not sleeping at home and you're not uh, working to earn your crust. Third place is a place where you, you feel relaxed, comfortable, you're, you're in an environment that, that you feel is quality. And I thought, why can't church be like that? Why can't people leave church feeling like, man, that was just an awesome experience? You know? and, and that happens when people connect with each other. That, that sense of mm. community. Um, there's a lot of talking culture right now about community. Uh, people talk about um, the internet community, but it's all a fake community. It's not genuine community. The church used to be an interactive sport. The church used to interact in community, but it's since abandoned probably its greatest evangelistic tool, which was to sit around like this and reason together and interact with with each other. Whoever you know devised the the the, the notion that church ought to happen in rows as an audience obviously did not know their New Testament. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting some of the things that you're saying, because I think on my own uh, church-going experience as someone who did grow up going to church, did grow up in the church, father was a pastor, um, I, I myself love public speaking, but I hate meeting people, right? I, I hate... Uh, being thrust into a situation where I don't know anyone and I've got to actually, you know, introduce myself and do the whole little small talk and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's just not one of the things that I enjoy at all. And I can tell you that probably not since I was a kid until our current uh, church, Refuge Long Beach, uh, which is a church plant. I mean, essentially, it's I mean, it's still... Yeah. You know, thirty to seventy people on a, a Sunday. You never know who's showing up, or you know <laughs> what that number is going to be. Um, who's, who's in jail? <laughs> right? Who's, who's, who's in jail, jail or yeah. who's parole officer? Oh, he's in jail that he can't make back. <laughs> Right. Um, but I mean, I, I never, I never had a sense of community in any church, and even uh, you know, our our big, as you call them, your sending church. Um, even when I attended that one, I I didn't like it. I mean, I didn't know anyone there. And here it is, a church of, you know, a couple thousand people on a weekend. And I'm like, dude, I don't know anyone in this whole place. And I've got nothing in common with any of them. Like, that's the yeah. thought that always goes through my head. So whenever there was an excuse to not go to church, I jumped at it. Like, <laughs> if Jamie's like, oh, I've got a, my wife's a ice skating uh, coach, right? So Every once in a while, she's got to uh, do a competition, and she's got skaters, and so she's not able to to go on Sunday, or she might be, you know, out of the state at a competition, something like that. And I'm like, oh, sweet man, I'm not going to church. That's that's just awesome. Because to me, like going without her would be even worse. Now I'm totally yeah. alone, and I know no one. 
And the funny thing to me is there's never, like, one of the things that just resonates so well with me in your uh, message in your book, Church Zero, is you talk about the youth have left our church. And I, I realize I'm not as young as I used to be, right? But I still see myself <laughs> as young. And it's, good it's like do. there's no one my age. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but there's but there really is no one my age. There's there's no yeah. one who fits my demographic. First of all, I'm self-employed, which already means I'm an oddball. You know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'm always starting up new businesses. I currently have three of them going on. And it's like there's there's no one I can talk to. And I contrast yeah. that to, uh, you know, like Refuge Long Beach, where now I can't wait to go on Sunday. I can't wait to see the people, to connect with them. And it's not like I have any more in common with them than I did with anybody else. I mean, sure. I probably have less in common at Refuge Long Beach. But yeah. but it's just a different environment all the way around. Yeah, and and this is this is the idea that you know I, I I just teased it a little bit that that Sunday became about mission for me because so often what church is is it's it's like the pastor doing his thing or it's trying to keep the church people happy, and I learned a long time ago that if you kind of set expectations at the beginning, look everyone, we don't care if you're happy, what we care of is you're healthy, and the only way you're going to be healthy is to get on mission, uh, reaching people. That's what we're here for. And so because my church started as a, um, you know, I have a two-pronged approach. In homes, we do what we call real church, which is, you know, uh, breaking of bread. We take communion, prayer, uh, all this stuff you actually never do on a Sunday. This <laughs> is stuff that we do uh, in in the midweek, and that's where we say, okay, this is our time. Every once in a while, God goes, ha ha, I'm gonna I'm gonna fool you and show up, uh, and and non believers are gonna get saved there too, and uh, you know that's always allowed, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but but Sunday mornings are always meant to be outreach for us. I just. I you you know Pete I hit on that all the time for people you know and they're like do we have this program and you know the childcare and we're like it ain't for you it ain't about that we see those people over there uh, those are the people that we're here to reach and you are missionaries you're coming with us uh, you're here to reach them once you get people to make that mental mind shift um, it's like breakfast so let's just talk about the uh, the conversation that you know we we kept that conversational aspect in church. Um, when we went into this school, we do, confessedly, we sit in rows right now. We won't be there forever, um, but we've tried an experiment because what we did with this was uh, the only way I went in there was I found out that this school is the poorest in the district, that these kids were only eating once a day, and that was during school lunches. So the school started serving breakfast in the morning because 60% of that neighborhood, their parents lived below poverty level. So as you know, Pete, we went in and we started fixing a hot breakfast, this and that. And, um, and I've tried this as an experiment. What if we do sit in rows? Because we can't help it. They're wooden theater seats um, in the auditorium. Right. But what if we gave people almost like a free form where they eat breakfast with complete strangers beforehand? And getting people to make that shift now where it's not organized during the service, but it's actually loose and free form, not just about get my breakfast, I'm on my mom, but it is I get my breakfast and sure, I'm going to feed myself, but I'm on mission. Really, the most evangelistic thing I can do right now is sit across the breakfast table with my pancakes and eggs and look into someone's eyes and say, tell me your story. 
It's, it's like hmm. Jesus sitting with the woman on the side of the well. And that's now, I feel, even harder for people uh, than when I used to send them out evangelizing in Bixby Park. That was hard. That was the icebreaker for people. That's another story for another day. But that was kind of, in fact, I think it's in Church Zero. I can't even remember what I wrote. But, uh, but getting people to realize we're on mission here, that, that is a game changer. Hey, right. I have a train. Right. You have dogs. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. I think the mailman just showed up, and that's why they're just going off, which I bet you anything. My wife left the window uh, open, which means I'm going to have to deal again with the post office. We're not delivering mail to your house ever again. <laughs> and these crazy dogs will not shut up. <laughs> no. You know what? Um, it's funny because a lot of the stuff that we're talking about actually – is in church zero. And a lot of it a lot of it isn't because I'm still learning as I go. I mean, I'm I'm not uh, by any means an expert. You know, again, just to reiterate in closing, um, a lot of church planners probably think that some guys out there are experts. And the fact of the matter is you cannot have a church planning expert. You know, when we, Pete, you and I for Church Planning Magazine, we interviewed Don Overstreet, who's known as Don the Baptist, 500 church plans he's been a part of. I think we mentioned him last week, but I was blown away by him. But, you know, he, he basically said the same thing. Every time you go back to ground zero, every church plant is its own animal. You need the Holy Spirit to turn up. You have no clue what's going to happen. You have biblical principles, but at the end of the day, it's everybody goes back to zero every single time yeah yeah that's it well hey look on the uh, the next podcast we'll we'll actually dive into uh kind of the the core to to church planning i think this was good just because it gives people another a take another viewpoint on uh on church planning and and probably, you know, one that's not nearly as sexy as uh, the big launches that you hear so much about. And, um, and yeah. but, but this is what, what really connects with people. And isn't that what you know, it's all about? Yeah, you know what? There's nothing sexier than the Book of Acts. I mean, really, it's funny how you say it because they're big and bad and they're flashy. But at the end of the day, I think if you give people a choice between what happened in Acts... And what what happens in a what what I call guerrilla planning, where you're low to the ground, you don't have a lot of resources, you got to move quick, you need the Holy Spirit. Guerrilla planning is probably sexier at the end of the day, but people just don't know that yet because it's not right. safe, it's not secure, and it's definitely not popular and it's not talked about. But it's probably more yeah. effective in the long run. <laughs> Well, I, and that's the thing. It's not popular, but I mean, really what it comes down to is what is it, wh- why are you really wanting to plan a church? Like, what is it that's yeah. driving you to do it? Is it, well, I want to get into ministry, and of course, I've got to have a good, safe, secure job. And, you know, we've we've managed to turn uh, being a pastor into a career of, you know, you can make a decent living depending on the area you're in. And so, oh, well, this guy over here, he's got a great book on how to do a mega launch. And, you know, I'm basically just going to siphon off Christians from everywhere else and start up another church, which is not to say that God cannot work through that. Because again, God doesn't need us. But 
really, do we want to be on the front lines? Do we want to see the really cool stuff when when God shows up? And you know, for yeah. me, that's that's half of the attraction. You never know what's going to happen at Refuge Long Beach. You just never know. Yeah, and yeah absolutely. I never you know, know. Makes me curious. I want to see. I want to show up. I just want to see what's going to happen next. People just turn up out of morbid curiosity. <laughs> you know, Which, and, whatever it, it takes, right? Amen, you know, whatever baby. it takes. Amen. But you know, it, it, it's so funny because um, at, at the end of the day, when you look, when guys are talking about church planning, here we are in the inner city. Um, I, I have to be careful I don't get on a soapbox here, but uh, the reality is. Nobody, everybody wants to go into middle class areas in church plant. Nobody's going into the urban. I can't say nobody, but the the vast majority of notices I get, newsletters I see, um, websites that have been built um, promoting a, a, an upcoming church plant, none of them are in the inner city. They're all in middle class areas, suburbs, areas where you want to live. Well, here's where you'll know the game is changing is that churches start getting planted in places people don't want to go, places that people don't want to live in. The first missionary book of the Bible, actually the first book chronologically written in of, of the prophets in the Old Testament was Jonah. And I think God set a precedent there that, look, I'm going to send you places you don't want to go. That's what Jesus told Peter. One day someone will lead you somewhere you don't want to go. And I think that... What's happening right now is we're going to places that are club med, you know, they're middle class uh, paradises, and that's not where the need is. When the gospel starts going where the need is, um, which is the inner city, then we'll know that guerrilla planning has really taken off. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today, guys. Um, I'm Peyton Jones. This is Pete Mitchell. Thanks for listening to our ramblings, our thoughts. Um, If you want to get in touch with us uh, in any way, um, you can contact me through newbreedcp.org uh, and uh, definitely check out Church Planner Magazine. Every month in Church Planner Magazine, we are giving all of the latest stories, interviews, um, you know, all of the advice from a wide array of church planners all across the board, not just uh, you know, my thoughts, Pete's thoughts, but the guys from Acts 29, the guys from the other networks, EV Free, Southern Baptist Convention, we're trying to pick the best of the best that's out there in the world of church planning. You can go to churchplannermag.com, and you can also go to the App Store and check out our app, uh, which is Church Planner Magazine. All right, guys, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music